So, Julia. <laughs> so, JJ. So, just between us therapists. <laughs> yeah. In this private consult. No, seriously. I'm what you might call your favorite therapist, favorite therapist. <laughs> Can you please put that on your website? That should be your Twitter bio. We got to sneak that in there. We can That's do very that. funny. So what do you want to talk about, JJ, between between us girls? <laughs> well, I was thinking that it would be interesting to talk a little bit about therapy in the context, not just of chest therapy, but more generally what your work looks like and what you do, in part because I now have several students who have independently started referring to their lessons with me as chest therapy. <laughs> I so believe that. And at first I was like, why are you doing this? Or they, they would they'd be telling me that they tell their loved ones that it's chess therapy. It's not just chess lessons. What a compliment. What a flex. Therapy and chess for the cost of just one little lesson? Mm. Sign up, people. Do you even teach any of your patients how to chess? Not yet. And once one of my clients comes in and professes independently to me that they love chess, they will become my favorite. <laughs> I can't wait. At first, I was like, if the people in your life don't understand why you have a chess coach, surely having a quote chess therapist is going to make even less sense. But then I realized that having an outlet where they were talking about their feelings or their frustrations or something was actually a real selling point. And I got into that. But I've also always been resistant of this idea of using a word like therapy, much like a word like psychology, or in my case, philosophy, as totally. a sort of buzzwordy way to be like, we talk about feelings, so it's therapy, or I make mistakes, it's psychology, instead <laughs> to kind of get into this idea of what therapy actually looks like. And the more Julia and I were talking about this, the more we were realizing how much overlap there is. Totally. Yeah, I have I have so many things to say about what you've just said, JJ. So thank God we'll finally have something to talk about on this podcast. And this will also be really helpful for our listeners who don't play chess, because according to a recent review, that's potentially all of them. <laughs> Do you want to read the review out loud right now? Should we sneak that in there? I mean, I know that that person said all sorts of nice things about us, but also was like, I wonder if their listeners even play chess. So <laughs> if you're out there, what's your rating? We love this one star review where we're like really quite proud of ourselves for reasons I can't understand. Well, maybe while we're on that topic for reviews, my favorite review is I still can't tell if they're actually sponsored by Chessable or not. And I mean that as a compliment. So here yes. we are, sponsored by Chessable. Okay, get our ad in there before we forget. Chessable. Chessable. <laughs> Chessable for the chess unable who want to become chess able. <laughs> That's ableist. Chessable for the neurodiverse loved ones in your life. <laughs> Literally anyone can use Chessable. Everyone can benefit from Chessable. If you don't have a little leftover Chessable stuck in your teeth, run, don't walk to our landing page where we have lots of cool courses. Want to learn end games? We got you. Want to <laughs> learn some tactics? We got you. Look, if you can type, I just learned a new opening, you can use Chessable. <laughs> Want to get better at chess? Best I can do is a Benoni. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. One, one. Yeah. Are you obsessed with chess, but also kind of fun at parties? Do you keep your opening prep on your bedside table right next to your feelings journal? Welcome to the Chess Feels Podcast, the only chess podcast dedicated yeah. to the social and psychological aspects of this game we know and love. And hate. Tune in every week to join me, 
professional chess teacher and amateur feelings haver, JJ Lang. And me, professional therapist and amateur checkmate finder, Julia Rios. As we dive into our shared love for the game and attempt to answer the most burning question for every chess obsessor. Why are we like this? Yeah. But yeah, I I have a lot of things to say. And the first one that I really do just want to have on the record is when you tell me, JJ, that your students have mentioned that your lessons feel therapeutic or feel like Mm -hmm. therapy. Mm -hmm. This just doesn't surprise me at all. JJ is the only friend I have in my life that I've (laughs) ever had the thought and also shared with them that I think would make just such a good therapist. (laughs) So when you tell me your students say that, it doesn't surprise me at all. And I'm going to be really curious to hear more about where in your lessons and kind of where in your chess coaching approach you feel like that shows up. Yeah, I'll be very curious too. (laughs) Yeah. But just right off the bat, it's been it's been so fascinating for me to really see how similar the processes are, because I imagine people would think of these as being very disparate. This idea that learning chess is very logical and intellectual mm. and cognitive, and that maybe therapy is this emotional space and kind of some vague processing that happens. So I'm going to be really excited to dive into the nitty gritty here and see what those shared mechanisms really are. Yeah, absolutely. What was something that jumped out to you as a parallel that was striking? Yeah, I think even the basis for us wanting to talk about this on the podcast was I was listening to Levy's podcast. He did an interview with Daniel Naroditsky, and they were just talking about, at least at the time of the interview, how they both were coaching. They still had students, and they were kind of talking about what that process looks like. And it was just so mind-boggling to me how closely this actually really mirrored what a therapy practice looks like. So as they were kind of talking about what they were doing, they were each explaining all these ways that they were trying to not only teach their students new lines or tactics or even principles about chess, Mm. but they were so emphatic that such an important process was not just the learning, but the unlearning. And really emphasizing that, especially with their adult students, one of the biggest barriers to improving in chess was all of these patterns that we have so deeply ingrained and how difficult it can be, especially for adults, because we don't have quite that same sort of neural plasticity that we do have at earlier stages in development. So a lot of what they were trying to do was sort of help tease apart what were the thought processes and the cognitive decisions underneath the chess moves that were happening Mm -hmm. and helping their students sort of identify patterns of thinking that were really detrimental for their chess. And they were kind of lamenting, this is really hard. You can even show this to your students and they're having trouble correcting it. And I sat up in bed (laughs) metaphorically (laughs) like, this is exactly how I describe therapy. It's a lot of learning. We can talk about skills to learn. We can talk about interpersonal effect We can do radical acceptance. There's so many things that we can learn, but I genuinely believe that such a fundamental critical part of the process is the unlearning. And it was such a similar kind of parallel in process. This idea of what I am really trying to accomplish is to help my patients become more aware and insightful of their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that are not 
helpful, that are not effective, that are not adaptive. So in chess, those might kind of be more obvious. We could think about emotions that aren't helpful, like stress or anxiety, behaviors that aren't helpful, not studying or playing impulsively, and especially Mm. thoughts that aren't helpful. Like here are sort of the things I'm doing in chess that aren't accurate, that don't lead to good positions or to wins. And then in therapy, we do that in a totally different way, right? So we're thinking about this in the context of are your thoughts and behaviors helping you live the life you want to live and be the person you want to be? But I just saw such a beautiful parallel between these things, and I was excited to talk about it. Yeah. So I can say that my experience teaching definitely parallels what you're describing for Danya and Levy, where a lot of people, you can tell them exactly what they should do. You can give them all sorts of tips. I think I've seen all sorts of tweets of like, my checklist of things to look for on every move, it's now up to 18 items or something. And it's like, oh my God, no. Every time you learn something or get a new piece of advice, you're trying to treat it as a new piece of information that you have to hold in your head and just add it on top of whatever framework you already have, or maybe don't even know you have. And I was talking to one of my students who got into chess during the pandemic, mostly plays faster games, knows that he's supposed to play slower games if he wants to improve, but doesn't really know how to play slower games. And described it as I usually just sit there for a while, think about some stuff, don't like most of it, talk myself out of it, and then talk myself out of the move I was going to play anyways. And sometimes that move was good. And so I just don't even really know what I should be looking at. And I was like, oh, it sounds like because you haven't found this way to think slower, what you're actually doing is just adding doubt or frustration or uncertainty or insecurity on top of whatever your snap assessment is. Which already maybe isn't working. Or at the very least, shouldn't work for a slower game. But can we figure out what that snap assessment is? Can we figure out why that was your snap assessment? And then can we pinpoint pieces of that? And I want to just pause and point out, JJ, that I don't think that's a given. I don't think all chess teachers out there are approaching it in that way. Probably not. I imagine that there are a lot of lessons that happen where the coach or the teacher is explaining, here's how you should think about it, or even testing the person. How would you think about it? Or what is your decision? And there might not be a lot of that introspection or that reflection happening of how are you thinking about it right now? So to me, it's like, Mm. we're trying to force the learning through the door, but we're not doing any of the unlearning that is overriding the learning that you're trying to do. And that's why your student might be coming back week after week, making the same blunders. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think something else that we've talked about as a parallel, and this can be an alternating turns kind of a relief and really frustrating is as a teacher, it does not feel week to week, like I'm making as much progress as I would be if every week I had new concrete opening lines I was teaching them. If every week there was new homework with new drills and new positions. I've had some students where, especially some of the higher rated ones, where it really has been, okay, a lot of your blunders are coming out of positions where you've already made a strategic mistake. And it's really there for a while with one student it really felt like every week for <laughs> several months, it was okay. Once again, we're going to talk about how your yeah. rationale for this move is always just a variation or two of what you thought would happen. And then the move you missed. And right. every week what's missing is the reason why I calculated the variation in the first place was there we go. And we talk about it. They get it. Then next week there's a loss and in there, It's like, I saw XYZ and then missed the follow-up. 
Like, yeah. Okay. But instead of this forcing variation, you could have castled. And why did you calculate the forcing variation and not just castle? Oh, well, I thought I could castle next turn. Okay. You could, but I think my, my joke there was, well, you know, on the one hand, it's frustrating to see the same mistake again and again for somebody who I think can really get to that next level. But on the other hand, at least I don't have to prepare a new lesson every week. And I like would I would even tell them, like, we'll have this conversation every week. I just want you to listen because I don't want to fill your head with new concepts, new ideas, new anything until you're able to figure out what it is that makes you jump straight into this looks shiny. Let me calculate it. Yes. And so that is another enormous parallel that I was seeing between these two potentially very seemingly different practices, which was the importance of awareness, of noticing, of observation. Mm. Therapy can't happen if we don't have a pretty profound, deep understanding of what you're actually feeling, what you're actually thinking, what you're actually doing. And that might seem so obvious, but I don't think people realize how much so many of us are moving through the day almost on complete autopilot. Something that I talk to my clients a lot about in terms of therapy goals is I want you to be in the driver's seat. Mm. I want you to be aware. I want you to be deciding. So it doesn't mean that you'll necessarily feel better or the anxiety will go away. But at least as you're moving through your world and through your day, you're making conscious decisions rather than acting in a way almost subconsciously, automatically, just to avoid anxiety or kind of acting out these deeply ingrained patterns of thinking and of behaving that you might not even be aware of. So I see so much of that in chess. I have two related thoughts on that. One is a couple of weeks ago, I was back at my parents' house. And I found kind of hidden in the corner of a bookshelf in my room, one of my score sheet pads with 70 or so games from high school. I remembered throwing most of my games from like middle and high school out when I was quitting chess and like really over it. But I was really happy to see that I found like probably the last edition of Selected Works. And I went through and looked through the games. One of the things that struck me so much was how impatient I was in a very particular way. Interesting. Yeah, say more. So... I remember that when I was a kid, tactics were my strength and that sharp positions were where I felt the clearest. And I know that's pretty common for a kid. And one of the things I actually really like about this Netflix miniseries called The Queen's Gambit, part of the main character's maturity as a person involves a maturity on the chessboard in terms of the first time she starts playing these incredibly strong players who are able to dry the game out positionally. She is just really frustrated that she never got to like play her Sicilian and just everything was like picked apart. And then by the end, she's really figured out not just how to do it, but like figured out how to appreciate the beauty in that. And that really does feel like a very common kind of chess maturity, at least that mirrored my own. Beautiful. And so seeing these games like, okay, when there's a clear plan of attack, when there's tactics or ways to create complications, I'm looking at this player and I understand the logic of what they're doing. But as soon as there's no complications, then either there's dubious sacrifices to force them, or there's just the strangest shufflingest moves 
of trading off your best pieces for no reason or just dancing around and waiting to see if something happens or throwing some pawns out to see what happens. Yeah. And it was just really jarring seeing this player that in certain positions definitely looked like me and in other positions I didn't recognize. But it reminded me of one of my major frustrations when I was playing as a teenager was I would blame the opening or something or be like, <laughs> damn, you know, there's certain games where it's just like, I don't know what to do. Classic and externalizing. Classic externalizing. And my attitude to it was like, yeah, I guess I just can't play my kind of game here. Or I don't even think I got as far as I don't know how to play this kind of game. It was just more like, this just doesn't fit. This just doesn't feel comfortable. And thinking about how a lot of the work I've done in and out of chess since I was in high school was be able to trace back, well, what felt like the natural way for me to play, what felt intuitive, what felt right. What did that actually mean? Yeah. What were those questions? How did I get there? And A, could any of those things be reformatted for kinds of games that didn't feel natural to me? And B, what other kinds of questions could I fill in those gaps with? And I really do just want to pause on that because I imagine a lot of people listening to this might not be doing that Mm -hmm. or have never even considered that process at all in their chess analysis. I imagine when people go to analyze a game, they might be really tempted to say, okay, this was a blunder. What was Mm -hmm. the right move? What should I have done? What did I miss? And all of those things are important. We should be doing that. That is very different, however, from what you've just said, JJ, of looking at the move and doing that deep reflection and asking yourself, why did I make this blunder? And sometimes it might be, oh, I hallucinated a piece wasn't there when it was. There could be those mistakes, but I imagine in those really slow games, there is so much to unpack. And beliefs about the position and about chess that are probably so faulty Mm -hmm. and so far away from what a grandmaster is thinking, which just creates this enormous chasm for improvement. I just remembered the really smart thing I was going to say that I almost forgot to say about this. Hell yeah. So what really struck me when I was going through the games was almost all of them were annotated, at least with exclamation marks and question marks for my moves and my opponent's moves, almost certainly without a computer. One pattern I saw in the games I lost would be I would play a move that embarked on some sort of tactical sequence. So making threats, forcing moves, etc. And then at the end would be their move that refuted it. And next to their move would be in my pen, maybe a different color, even an exclamation mark. And sometimes even in my chicken scratch, I missed this. And this is probably me after the game saying that my evaluation was I went for this tactic, usually that move not even being given a question mark, certainly nothing written about why I went for it. And then when I realized that I missed something and they found it, just exclamation mark, damn, they found it. If only I saw it, then I wouldn't have gotten into this losing position. Fuck. And I know how I thought when I was a teenager, and I would never think, well, why did I think that I should be looking for a tactic here? Was I justified in looking for a tactic and I just went in the wrong order? Was I justified in looking for a tactic, but just got unlucky? Was I unjustified in looking for a tactic from a good position? And there are so many things Mm. where I had a very pleasant position, tried to force things for absolutely no reason, got burned exactly the way I should for trying to force things before I'm fully developed, but have a better structure or something. And my diagnosis was just, ah, they found that good move. Moving on. Right. And this is something, JJ, that I feel like you and I have been talking about a lot lately for whatever reason. This idea of sometimes the best thing to do is literally nothing. Mm -hmm. And we talked about this with Nate a little bit too. 
I, I love the way you phrased it the other day, JJ, when we were just chatting this idea of what if I just look at the board and literally just blunder check. Every move I make mm. is just don't blunder and at the best, maybe try to put my pieces on a square that increases their activity or just improves them marginally, which is so different than what you've just described that you were doing in your teen years of I'm going to force the tactic. I'm going to find it. I'm That's where play. I feel comfortable. That's the kind of player I am. These are the things I excel at. Exactly. And it's funny, too, just to tuck in there. That is also something that we talk about in therapy. There's literally something in DBT that really touches on this. Like, what do we want to do moving forward when we have a conflict or when we have an issue? Sometimes the best thing to do is don't make it worse. <laughs> don't do anything at all if you don't know where to go. This idea of resisting impulsivity or increasing the tension, essentially, when it's not effective. So I don't know. I, I just I think that's really fascinating. I imagine there's also something that will come up a lot in therapy in terms of people wanting to justify decisions they make or a type of pattern they make as that's just who I am or that that's just the kind of person I am. And that's something that will definitely come up a lot. Totally. In chess. Yes. I, I wanted to keep queens on because I'm an attacking player. Oh my gosh, yes. I can't believe you're saying this. This has literally come up very recently in my own work. This is something that I think about a lot in my therapy practice and that I talk with my patients about a lot. You're right. This does come up. And it's this idea of just making a subtle shift, gently redirecting my clients when they're expressing this is just who I am. And I'm very adamant about this. This is mm. not necessarily who you are. This is just what you do. This is just what you've always done. So we are really trying to tease apart this idea of your feelings are not you, your actions are not you, your thoughts are not even you. Your good moves are not you, but your blunders, your blunders, <laughs> your your, blunders are you. Your, your blunders are you. Sorry, sweetie. <laughs> but so much of therapy, such a core tenant, is actually really helping our clients get that distance and not have that tight fusion that real conflation of their feelings, thoughts, or behaviors mm. with their sense of self. So if you're not your actions, your thoughts, et cetera, who are you? Where yeah. I'm hoping that my clients can start to anchor and achieve that sense of self are in things like their values and their goals, what they care about. So this is very different then mm -hmm. this is just who I am when someone is describing this really maladaptive behavior. Let's think about something like, what would be a good example, JJ? Attacking without developing. <laughs> okay, let's think about someone who comes in and says, you know, I sabotage every relationship that I'm in. Um, mm -hmm. As soon as I start to get close to someone, I find myself feeling really uncomfortable. I start to find faults with the other person. I take on H7. <laughs> exactly, right? And this does not make me happy. I'm in therapy because of this. So I recognize mm -hmm. that this is a problem. And I want to have deep, meaningful, fulfilling relationships. But I am seeing this pattern where as soon as I start to get really close with someone, I am acting in this way that I don't totally understand. But this is just who I am. That is a perfect example. This is the perfect example where we can start to do some of that diffusion or get some of that distance. This is just what you do or this is what you've always done. Mm -hmm. I want to have a conversation with you about what you actually do value in relationships. How would you like to show up in the perfect world? What are the things that you want to bring to a relationship? And that person might identify, I want to 
show up as someone who is loyal and kind and generous. They might identify all these mm. things. Okay, that is you. That is who you are. Cool. That is who you are when we're sitting in a chair across from each other. You're not always acting in a way that is in service of those values, and that's okay. We all do this every single day. We act in ways that are not aligned with what we really believe or value or care about or even what we want to be doing. So we just need to slow down. We need to look at the way we're moving through the world. And we need that time so that we have that moment to assess, is this moving me towards the life I want to live and the person I want to be and the relationships I want to have or further away? And I just hear you describing that yeah. same process in chess. Yeah. You have it. to slow down. You have to analyze, but you also have to be asking those questions. Mm -hmm. What am I currently doing? Is it working? Why or why not? And what do I want to do instead? All those things need to happen in that order. And to tie it back in even more explicitly to this idea of unlearning, I imagine that asking this question, you know, of, okay, how do I be more aligned with my values that I've identified? I imagine it's very difficult to just be like, okay, well, I'm going to keep doing everything I was doing and then also try to be more loyal, more XYZ. What I will see students do in chess is they will apply everything they can when they slow down on top of whatever it is they were already doing without right. really reflecting on what it was they were already doing. And then they just try and add to it. Right. We're not just trying to pile on. Exactly. Top. I guess I was trying to say more that they slow down, but they're not noticing it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's good. So they've already built the skill of slowing down. For some people, they're not even slowing down. All of this is happening so lightning fast automatically that they're not even aware that there was a decision being made or there mm -hmm. was a thought that happened or there was a feeling that came up that influenced that behavior. So for a lot of people, that slowing down process in therapy really needs to happen. And I imagine in chess as well. People don't even understand the yeah. core beliefs and the, the decisions that are happening based on what they're thinking or feeling. I think that what will happen in chess, and this is why I think chess is such an interesting test case for some of these things we're yeah. talking about, is yeah. the presence of a literal clock means you can just objectively measure whether you're quote unquote slowing down mm. without actually measuring whether you're doing any of the things Julia is talking about when you slow down. Cool. That's so true. So the kind of slowing down that I will see from my students is if they used to give me three candidate moves that they considered in a position over the course of their five minute think, mm -hmm. then we started talking about how, well, you know, not every position calls for the attacking move. What if you just strengthened your position? Then they might give me a fourth candidate move now in their six minute because they slowed down. And then a note following it saying, but I didn't see what that achieved. And then just go <laughs> yeah. back to one of the tactics. And it's like, okay, cool. Look, they, they slowed down. They considered what a kind of move JJ would talk about that they wouldn't have considered a month ago, but it just didn't, it quote, didn't work. And sometimes that will be the only writing. It's like it didn't work. And so there in the sense of did they slow down? Yes, they spent two more minutes. Did they pile on? Yeah, they absolutely added a kind of thing in there that they wouldn't have done before. Right, they learned like a little skill, like, oh, I could do this, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but... <laughs> but I'm going to evaluate it the same way I evaluate all of my tactical moves. And say it doesn't win by force. No so shit. So it's not acknowledging that exactly. undercurrent of the decision yes. of what I always do. But they slowed down. The clock said they slowed down. And that's the kind of hump that I think we get in. You've got it. You can slow down and still not have the awareness. You can slow down and even have the awareness and still not be able to implement the mm -hmm. new, more adaptive way of thinking or acting. 
And that comes up in therapy a lot too. I'm pretty adamant with my clients. I'm really not in the business of telling you what you quote unquote should or should not do in any given situation. I just want you to have the information so that you can look at the context of whatever environment or circumstance you're in and act in a way that feels aligned with who you want to be. And I can't really tell you who that is. So I think that might be a difference in chess. You might say like, hey, if you want to be a titled player, like this is who you should be. There are some objective sort of (laughs) rights and wrongs. So I feel like that's a difference. But do you want to nod to the fact that I part of the process in therapy is my client saying, now that we've talked about these things, I am noticing it. I'm mm-hmm. seeing the ways I'm acting that are not serving me or my relationships or my job, what have you, but I'm still having trouble doing something differently. And that is totally okay. I yeah. I do think it's important to bring so much patience and self-compassion into this process, reminding my clients, this is not a light switch. This took years, maybe even decades for you to develop these patterns. And the core beliefs that are underneath them were established during this operative period of development when you were young. Mm -hmm. These are deep neurological grooves. We are not going to radically adjust and change to a very opposite pattern of thinking or behaving overnight. That's okay. But how do we get there? We slow down, we notice, we practice. And the more that we do this, the more that we can start to build new neural paths. And tying back to the idea of the annotated games collection as a chess player's feelings journal is like, can you, at least after you play the game, you're an attacking player. So you say you made an attack. It didn't work. Instead of just saying, here's the move I missed, like I did when I was a teenager. Can you say, okay, do I remember during the game? Did I think to myself, this is why I think the attack is justified or this is why the attack is necessary? Yes or no. And then if yes okay, cool. Like, that's great. Now, now we can do the more chessy work of, did you miscalculate? Did you misevaluate, et cetera, et cetera. But at the very least, you at least you ask the question is, am I, am I like, okay, well, I have a worse pawn structure. And if I don't sacrifice now, they trade Queens and I don't like my end game. Therefore I'm going to calculate the attack. That's a great reason to attack. If it's, well, I'm an attacking player. They made an inaccuracy on move seven in the opening, according to my chessable course. And I think I should be able to beat them because I'm underrated. So I wanted to look at the attack. (laughs) Then it's like, oh, man. So I got to go for the jugular. Mm -hmm. There's no other way. And I can just tell you, JJ, if that was the message I was getting in my context, I would say, great. Okay. You can keep doing that. If you're Mm -hmm. coming in saying this is who I want to be, awesome. Do that to your heart's content. But why are you in my office? Why is a student in your chess Zoom room? (laughs) Because it's not working and you mm-hmm. you know that on some level and you're coming into this space to learn something new. I think going back to what you're saying about, well, maybe with chess, there actually are objective values that you should have if you want to be a high level chess player. I think that's almost certainly true. Bishop pair, but, <laughs> but Nidorf, but <laughs> I think that most people will actually have those. And so what will actually happen is no, you like attacking when it works. You don't like attacking when you don't believe in it and you feel frustrated and you can't find anything else to do. So you want to have flexibility. And yeah. I talk about this on the podcast all the time. That's what I'm doing too, like psychological flexibility. Yeah, exactly. It's not because I'm trying to say stop attacking. It's more like you associate the attacks that have worked out well for you with what you want to do. 
but you know that not every attack you make works out well for you and you want to figure out why. And that's what we're doing here. So the first thing we're going to do is if you can start asking yourself, do I think this attack is going to work out or not? Then you can dissect that all you want later, but at least you're starting to build in the switch of, okay, I'm attacking because I've made the decision rather than because that's what I do. That's who I am. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I love that you brought up that sort of specific scenario, JJ, of that conflation with what we do or even what we think with who we are. Mm -hmm. And so when clients or students are coming to us, there's something about that statement that sort of has this implicit assumption that there's a helplessness, like Mm, it has mm -hmm. to be this way. I can't do anything differently. And you and I both can look at the same scenario and understand that might be hard. That might feel impossible. Um, You certainly can. So if you want to, let me help show some ways to start to do that. Even if it's not this light switch, it won't happen instantaneously. It's very possible. I see this all the time on chess Twitter. I see things like round three paired against a higher rated player. They played an opening that I wasn't familiar with. Mm -hmm. Just wasn't my day, I guess. Didn't stand a chance. Yeah. And then you look at the game and it's like, okay, they're like out of book or theory by move seven or like the computer says it's an equal position. And to them, it's this sort of helplessness because they don't have whatever blueprints they're used to, but they're in a perfectly playable game of chess. Or I think I'm just not a solid enough player to stick with the Karakhan. Help me out. Hashtag chess punks. What should my new opening be? Yeah. And I thought about this so much in our conversation with Nate. I love what he said about just pointing out, honestly, a very obvious fact that no matter what opening we're learning or that we become invested in, there's always going to be a line or two that we don't like. There's no perfect opening that you can calculate out to checkmate, right? (laughs) So there's going to be lines that are frustrating or difficult or we have more trouble with. So instead of literally throwing our entire repertoire in the toilet, Mm -hmm. what would it look like to actually practice the hard thing that we don't like that we're probably way more averse to spending time on? We want to do the things that we like and we enjoy. And we can do that as much as as much as you want. If that's your goal is to have fun, then do all of that. Yeah. If your goal is to really improve in this way, it might actually take a bigger, more intentional effort to slow down and start to focus on the things that make us really uncomfortable. But I totally see that fitting into what you've said, JJ, almost as helplessness of like, well, I don't know this line or these positions just totally confound me. Like, okay. Even if you can make the step, especially in a slow game from, oh, shit, I hit this opening to, oh, crap, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do here to just pause and say, well, wait, if I don't know what to do here, let me think of similar positions that I was hoping I'd get into. First of all, what happens if I do the same thing? What is different? What do I know about chess that could tell me whether those differences are relevant or not? Is the reason I hate this opening oh, look at that. This kind of plan that I use a lot in the variations I like just is shut down by this move. That's why I hate it. Okay, cool. Because they're covering that square, what squares are they not covering? Oh, I love that. Or even just like, well, let me make a choice. You know, They did this thing different. So should I respond to that or not? And it becomes a little bit easier. As opposed to almost this emotional reaction of, I don't know what this is. It's like when you're driving and someone cuts in front of you, like, do you just take your hands off the steering wheel and start screaming? Yeah. For some people, maybe yes. Or would it make more sense to tighten your grip a little bit and hit the brakes and slow down and try to use some judgment even in a really hot moment? I don't know. Is that a trick question? 
<laughs> it is, but take your time, JJ. You can think about it and you can submit an answer to me later. As a Benoni player, I think it's the first <laughs> one, but I'm not sure. You're like, you hit the accelerator and you hope for the best. You ram them into the side and you both go off the cliff. You just start driving on the median and hope nothing bad happens. Doubled H pawns, let's go. Let's go. A nasty word that comes up a lot in chess that I think is really interesting that I was thinking a lot about in the context of my own games and that I think gets a lot of my students into trouble. It's not quite this. This is who I am. So it's not quite the sort of fusion, but the word is intuition. Mm. I imagine you have students who just say, oh, I have really bad intuition. Yeah, but that's fine. Okay. My problem is the ones who think they have good intuition. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> I was like ready to put myself on blast because I know you and I, especially in some of our earlier lessons, I've sort of been like, man, I don't feel like I have a good intuition in this position or something. Right. But every time you say that, it's like insanely stupid because it's a position where like the move is so brilliant and instructive that the point of me showing it to you is to improve your intuition and to put it in your repertoire. And instead, you're just like, I never would have thought of that. It's like, <laughs> yeah, that's that's why we're looking at it because no one should think about it. Or it's like, actually, a decent <laughs> intuition would rule out this move. So let's talk about what the decent intuition is missing to make you better. And the thing that I think is so interesting about intuition, a lot of chess players will sometimes say things like, it felt like they were going to get too much initiative if I didn't strike now. It felt like this was the right time to attack. Exactly. It yes. felt like my pieces were too passive to consider the sacrifice. And okay, so this comes mm -hmm. up in therapy all the time there you go. too. This is exactly how anxiety functions. When people are coming in, they're essentially trying to communicate I'm having all this anxiety. I feel like something is wrong. I feel like when my friend doesn't respond to my text message fast enough, they hate me. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to do is essentially help people understand that just because we have a feeling or emotional response, it's not necessarily reflected of the reality of our world, of our relationships. It's not necessarily based on facts that are true. So we can yeah. validate the feeling like, yeah, that is uncomfortable. That is stressful. Uh, we can understand why someone would feel that way, especially in the context of psychopathology like depression or anxiety. But we also want to help them recognize that those feelings do not necessarily reflect a perfect, infallible perception or understanding of the context that they're in. And I hear you saying exactly that about chess. You felt like maybe there was a threat or an attack that you could build on. Mm -hmm. Instead of just reacting on a pure feeling, can we treat the feeling like a hypothesis and then test it? Yes. You had that feeling. Can you actually check it? <laughs> like, look at the board in front of you, bro. Yeah. Like the advice I would give is, okay, if you feel like their attack is getting strong, then before you think of anything, any candidate moves for you, pass the turn to them in your head, have them start the attack. And how does it go? If it ends in checkmate, okay, cool. They have a real threat. And now you've learned exactly what your candidate moves need to be, moves that stop something in that checkmating threat. If it peters out and goes nowhere, then cool. It looks kind of sounds like you can ignore it. Or if it peters out and goes nowhere because you had one piece that was perfectly placed, thank God. Okay, cool. You learned a new important defender you didn't know was there before. And all of that's going to influence where it goes. 
And we're not saying ignore it. It's just don't take every fear as therefore I need to play quote a defensive move because what I will see happen a lot is players will then play a move that quote looks defensive because they were playing against a move that quote felt scary. (laughs) And maybe the move was or wasn't scary, but maybe her move was or even wasn't defensive. It's hard to know if you're not telling me what made it scary or how scary it was. Exactly. So I imagine this is really hard for people to maybe even articulate. Some people might not even have the language. They've never tried to kind of do this internal pivot and sort of assess what's happening for them and what is showing up in terms of their emotionality or the thoughts that they're having to describe why they're acting the way that they're acting. So they might have trouble with that. I imagine in chess too, JJ, when you say, you know, why did you play this move or this series Mm -hmm. of moves? On one level, it might be they don't know why, or even if they start to feel why, they don't really have the language for it. Yeah. And it's usually a combination of the kinds of patterns that you've come to recognize and built up over the years. There's only so many times you can be Greek gifted before you start knee-jerk defending Greek gifts without calculating them. That seems it's a bad but totally logical response to getting Greek gifted. One of the things I really do want to ask you in this conversation, JJ, was you were sort of nodding to how difficult it can be to have your students coming in Mm. week after week. And you sort of helped direct them to some level of awareness of where their thinking is sort of corrupted and isn't quite working, Mm -hmm. but they continue to evaluate or calculate positions in this way. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you have any ideas about how you could start to almost make unlearning a trainable skill the way we make learning a trainable skill. We think of the learning as something that we can potentially drill with tactics or we can do a chessable course or read a book. What kind of Mm -hmm. things could we possibly do to help with the unlearning? Yeah. I mean, one homework that I will give is to have people annotate their own online rapid or even blitz games Yeah, and pinpoint moments where like identify the skill we're talking about, whether it's Attacking before developing, pawn breaks that create weaknesses, trading without thinking about peace value, things like that. Find some moments in your games where you did that, make a study, and write down, was your rationale just, I played this without thinking? Was it, I played this based on calculation only? Or was, I played this because I decided that this was the right strategy? Mm. not evaluate was it right or not but just put down like tell me not even just when it was good or bad just tell me like did you attack tell me was this attack something that i played off of intuition i mean after all it's blitz was this attack something that i calculated for 30 seconds and thought worked or was this attack something where i was like well i think my position is worse if i don't play this just tell me and after each game just mark in there was this a decision or a reflex right so then that can help with the level of awareness, mm-hmm. right? And building that skill of slowing down and noticing. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering about the next step, JJ, when that person comes back the next week and you show them a position and they literally enact the exact set of thinking patterns. Yeah. How do you start to almost help rewire some of those things? Yes. That's a great question. And I don't pretend to have the answer. No, and I don't know if there is an answer. I don't know if there's an answer, but I can report two things that I've seen work, at least start to work. One is I sometimes like playing my own games and narrating them for students' lessons, especially when I think that their thought process is not helping them. 
and that they're having a hard time seeing that. So I'll play like maybe a five or 10 minute game. And pretty much as I play it, I'm just announcing, oh, that last move renews their threat on X. So I should just play something that strengthens this up. Or, oh, I have some nice play against their backwards pawn. So maybe I'll just shift my pieces over to this part of the board. And usually what they'll say is, oh, I realized how many times I wanted to stop and say, well, what if I took that pawn? What if I threatened the queen? What if I played that check? Not because it tied into any of the things you were already talking about. I got that we weren't prepared to attack, but I kept wanting to say, well, let's just check this and see what happens. And before I could do that, you were just playing a move that was consistent with the stuff you said. So I think something that can be nice there is modeling behavior. And that's why I would definitely recommend people like some of the, especially someone like Hikaru play Bullet. I've actually recommended people watch Hikaru play Bullet because when he's playing at that speed, he is probably the fastest calculator on the planet. Yeah. But his main goal is to get himself into positions where he doesn't have to calculate. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good little nugget. So because, you know, if he has to spend seven tenths of a second calculating a variation that might take you 10 minutes, that's quite a lot of time. If he could save those seven tenths of a second by anticipating that he only has to calculate if the center opens up and he can close down the center now, then he's saved those precious seconds. And we're not doing this because those seconds for him are minutes and inaccuracies and blunders and mistakes for us. It is a really interesting way to see that the way that someone like him or Magnus or Danya, the way they play these speed games is in a way that is very much focused on what's something simple within my control to keep the game from getting into unclear waters. (laughs) Which is so different than also the people are going in saying, I'm trying to attack and I'm trying to force something. Like I almost want to bring it into these muddy waters, hoping it's muddy enough that my opponent will also get lost and I can capitalize. It really is hope chess, right? Play like tall, RAP. <laughs> Pour some out. Pour some out. Pour a lot out. So the short answer there is one intervention is making sure that they have some model players, model behaviors that they can watch, whether it's like me playing or some of these streamers who are trying to make the game easier rather than harder as they play. Because a lot of people will only play their own games or maybe they read books, which Jan Marcos and David Navarra in their book, The Secret Ingredient, suggests that a problem with some chess books is you have all of these players picking the greatest games they've ever played. And sometimes there's a temptation to retroactively claim you saw everything in advance when you didn't. And there's also this thing of, okay, yeah, it sounds so clear and easy, but this is also 60 games out of your like 10,000 game career. What happened in the other 9,940 games where it didn't work out like this? So I do like the idea of watching people stream their games and actually just talk through the raw process of the games that might occasionally produce brilliant games, but usually aren't just pre-selected and then airbrushed over to be the brilliancies. Yeah, I love that. That's what I was going to kind of start to point to, JJ, to add on to that exercise that you'll do with students, which I think is awesome, where you're sort of narrating your stream of consciousness and giving them that model. Hey, here's what I'm thinking about. And hopefully Mm -hmm. they're doing a compare and contrast of, okay, how close or far apart is that from what I would be thinking in this position or like moves I was looking at? I can imagine would also be really helpful to literally then switch and have them do the same thing. Mm -hmm. So almost for us trying to brainstorm, how can we start to drill the unlearning? Then as they're narrating their stream of consciousness and you hit on sort of those faulty wirings, the core beliefs about the position or about chess that are just simply not helpful or accurate, 
then you can give them some real-time response. Yeah. Because when you're playing blitz and you're doing those things over and over again, you don't necessarily, especially if you're not analyzing your games, get that immediate feedback. Hey, this is incorrect. So you just keep sort of deepening the groove, right? Mm -hmm. I imagine it could be so helpful to have your student be narrating that stream of consciousness so that you can interject and basically say, hey, let me pause you right there. Like hit the buzzer, which is accomplishing two things. It's forcing you to think about your thoughts, say them out loud, and even notice maybe for yourself for the first time what those are and why you're making the decisions that you're making. But then also it's relaying that information to you, the coach, who can act as the buzzer and give the feedback, not on the move, but on the thoughts that are leading to the moves. Mm, I like this because I will have students sometimes kind of almost defensively be like, well, that was just the first move I looked at. I was just getting oriented to the position. It's like, OK, but did that have to be the first move you looked at or why, why do you actually think you looked there first? Exactly. So now you are giving them that moment to Mm -hmm. say, hey, could you do something else? Could you think about something else? Use your little noggin. If you do this, I'd be curious to see how it goes and if it's helpful. And I have one more intervention too. And this is something from one person who was talking about earlier who like, you know, felt like we were having the same conversation every week of you keep saying, damn, I just missed this thing in my calculation. And you keep not remembering to pause and figure out why you chose to calculate or viewing it as a decision. They got over that hump and were like, I realized that I I could start saying, wait, I don't have to go down this line. I actually have simpler moves. And then suddenly, instead of being in time trouble every game because I'm calculating everything or blundering something in my calculation, suddenly I have much more time than them. The game just goes on and on. Occasionally, they make horrible moves. Or other times, they just calculate more than I do because I'm playing good moves that are hard to play against. Then suddenly, instead of me having one minute and they have 10 and I lose, I have 10 minutes and they have one and then they lose. Right. The biggest thing for that shift was my student took a month off. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I would love to say that this was my astute wisdom, but they were playing a couple games a week or a couple tournaments a month. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes there's something to be said of you've been playing your tournament chess the way you play your tournament chess for years. And it's really hard to get into this, frankly, stressful environment. And I imagine it's something similar for the stressful environments in most people's everyday lives, Yeah, where it's just really hard to just wake up tomorrow and do things totally differently, totally. Like, just like you were saying. But can you remove yourself from that environment for a bit? Keep thinking give about the stuff. Give yourself a little reset. Give yeah. yourself a reset, let it digest, and then come back and say, oh, look at that. My temptation is to start calculating right away. But because it's not what I've been doing, you know, every Saturday for the past two years, it's something I haven't done in a while. It feels a little bit easier to get that distance and say, wait, what if I don't calculate? This is so true on Mm -hmm. a psychological level. JJ, I can't even tell you how true this is because something that I talk about in therapy a lot is really in the service of validating how difficult it can be to see these exact things you're talking about. Like, what even were the thought patterns? What was underneath the way that I'm acting? Or sort of this idea that I like to share with my clients that it's really hard to see because it's the water that you're swimming in. Mm. It's the beautiful analogy that David Foster Wallace used in his speech at Kenyan College, where the two fish are swimming by the other fish. And he goes, hey, like, how's the water? And the fish looks at the other fish and goes, what is water? It's so profoundly true, though. So I love what you've just said, this idea of by taking that month off, it's almost like if you get out of the water Mm -hmm. and you're not adjusted to it, you're not swimming in it, 
the next time you get in the water, you might be able to notice, hey, it's really cold in here. Whereas if you're used to it and you're swimming in it every day, it's really hard to notice and feel that. So I think that is just such a beautiful example. I really like that. Yeah, I think that could be one of the best things. And I mean, in my own case, right? I was getting that when I was looking through my games as a teenager. And there were so many things where what at the time felt like out of my control, it was so clear to me from the moves I was making, I could see what the thought process actually was. I could see where I was starting to get nervous. I could see where I was starting to shut down, where I was defaulting to the wrong thing as like a crutch and having like 15 years of distance giving me that perspective on it. But remembering how strongly in that moment, it felt like all of this was out of my control. Totally. was really eye-opening. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that, JJ. And I mean, you even kind of brought that up at the beginning of this episode, the difference in the feeling that you got looking at your games <laughs> as an adult that you played when you were a teenager. You have such a different perspective. There's things that are so much easier for you to see now. And I also just want to reflect that that's literally why people hire therapists or chess coaches. It's a lot easier to see the state of the water when you're not in the water, like mm. I can look into your little fishbowl and say, hey, it's kind of dirty in there. <laughs> it's really hard when that's what you're swimming in each day. So I imagine that's kind of how you function as the coach, JJ, is to say from this sort of outside perspective, it's a lot easier for me to observe where these little pitfalls are, especially as a higher rated player. Absolutely. And then also other bonuses too, like after going through my games as a high schooler, I've decided I'm going to play the dragon again. <laughs> it's been so fun to be on that journey with you. I'm not going to lie. Hashtag dragon girl winter. Hashtag dragon a dead deer up the hill. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on this journey or whatever. <laughs> yeah. If you don't have a chess coach yet or, or a, a therapist, therapist, yeah, just hire both of us. That's true. We'll tag team you. Imagine if people got both of us in the lesson. Who wouldn't pay for that? Chat, why don't you tell us how much you would pay per hour for that? Name your price. They're like, okay. if Julia shows up at my lesson, I'm paying less. <laughs> <laughs> I do not think that's what most of our listeners would say. Let's pull them. If Twitter's still up and running, you know, next week, we'll pitch it to the people. As always, thank you for letting us take you into this deep, dark forest. Where two plus two equals five, and the path leading out is only wide enough for listeners like you. Intro and outro music provided by JPEG Mafia. We would be yeah. truly touched if you subscribe and leave us a glowing review. And tell all of your friends. <laughs> yeah, all of them. And every week, we'll be gifting one lucky subscriber who leaves a five-star review a lifetime premium diamond membership yeah. to leechess.org. Unlocking all of their features. Even that? Especially that. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ChessFuelsPod. Oh, and if you didn't like what you heard, do not hesitate yeah. to message any feedback. No matter how critical or scathing. Directly to Mr. Dodgy, our social media manager, even though he doesn't know it. At <laughs> Chess Problem. One. Yeah. Yeah.